Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. If you want to expand your vegetable garden palette this year, this is the episode for you. We're talking about vegetable varieties that are tasty but unappreciated. Broccolini, radicchio, malabar spinach, joy choy, moringa, and much more. Do your garden plans include insectary plants? What's an insectary plant? Those are the annuals, perennials, and shrubs that attract pollinators and beneficial insects that'll do battle against the bad bugs in your garden without any chemical help from you. And the plant of the week is that cascading yellow color of late winter and early spring, the forsythia. It's episode 81 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you by Smart Pots, and we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Well, if you're a new gardener and maybe you started gardening last year and this year, oh, I think I want to try something new, something different. Well, this is the episode for you. We're talking about something new, something different for your cool season and your warm season vegetable gardens. We are at a Sacramento area nursery, Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery, talking with the manager, and he's a master gardener as well, Quentin Young, international bon vivant, very familiar with foods from around the world, and he likes to bring them into his nursery here. Quentin, let's start talking about uh, some of the cool season vegetables that you have in that people may be unfamiliar with that they may want to try. They're still plenty of time to plant cool season vegetables even here in california it's uh early march and there's still two three months left of good growing easy yeah yeah everybody's always, everybody's always in a hurry to get their warm weather stuff in but now's a great time to continue growing your cool weather stuff or to try something new all right so what do we have here that uh, people may not be familiar with now I, i'm looking at one right off the bat here Joy Choi, which is a Pak Choi variety, and people may not even know what Pak Choi is. Yeah, so there's a whole kind of selection of the Asian Choi's that usually you're familiar with with Asian cooking. The Joy Choi is a really nice upright bok choy, very dark green leaves, very uh, nice white stem. Um, it'll get quite large in terms of the Choi's, maybe um, 10 to 12 inches tall. And you harvest it for the greens? Yeah, for the greens and for the stems. What about bolting? Does joy choy tend to bolt easily in the heat? In the heat, most of these will bolt, so that's why they're really good cool season vegetables. All right. So, and again, these are Chinese cabbages, the pak choy, the joy choy, and uh, whatever else you have here. Yeah, we've got the toy choy, which is a really nice small one. Um, we've got some of the really um, harder to find purple leaf um, tatsoi, um, and they're just a really nice contrasting color in your garden, um, but also just in your kitchen as well. Now, even though it, the name is cabbage, Chinese cabbage, it's a leafy cabbage. It's not a heading cabbage. Well, so the Napa cabbage is referred to as a heading cabbage, but it's much looser. It's not as um, hard and crunchy as what you would refer to maybe as a European white or red cabbage. Yeah, it almost looks like a romaine. It does, and it's got that sort of savoyed leaf, um, and this is usually the one that's um, used for making kimchi. Uh-huh. And here's one. It's a beautiful reddish leaf. It's a 
you pronounce it radicchio and that's really popular um uh in italian cuisine it's a bitter green um and this is one of those um salad greens you may or may not be familiar with and you may or may not like like the taste depending on whether you like bitter greens but i i really like it and i like the i love the color of it too one of my favorite lettuces and i discovered this a couple of years ago and it really is a good producer and if you've never grown lettuce before it is really an easy lettuce and a very productive lettuce and it can take some heat too the salanova oak leaf lettuce yeah the whole salanova series um, are really productive they're very upright um very crispy and very flavorful all right. What else do we have here? Um, let's see. We've got um, all of our spinaches. We've got kale. We've got Swiss chard. We've got snap peas, snow peas. We've got the Chinese broccoli. We've got broccolini. Uh, we've got a whole range of um, beets. We have beet greens. So there's tons of things that you could still put in right now to grow in the cool season, and especially with the lettuces. You don't need a lot of space for them, so you could just grow these in flower pots if you wanted to. Talk about Chinese broccoli and broccolini. So the broccolini is sometimes called um, asperbrock. It looks, it's sort of a uh, flavor uh, combination of asparagus and broccoli. You eat both the leaves and the stems and the unopened flower buds. Um, same with the Chinese broccoli. Usually it will get a little bit bigger and you can also eat that um, really good in stir fries and soups and things like that. Yeah, usually with broccoli you're thinking about uh, eating the florets. Yeah, and this one you can eat both the leaves and the stems as well. Alright, again, Chinese broccoli and broccolini and uh, your area nurseries uh, may, may have that in stock. A lot of great uh, cool season stuff here. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the more unusual ones that you have here. What are some of the uh, more international ones? For the cool season vegetables would probably be the broccolini and the asperbrock. We have some of the purple sprouting broccolis. Those do really well. Um, we've got some different kinds of spinaches, um, some interesting celeries, and just a lot of leafy greens. Um, and again, with, with the different kinds of choys, you can also eat them small in salads, too. All right. Talk a bit about celery. That's uh, Here in California, it can be difficult to grow here in the hot Central Valley, but elsewhere, it's fairly easy. It's fairly easy to grow. You know, sometimes you won't get the um, the large central ribs that you usually get on the grocery stores, but they're really good still for cooking. They have a lot of celery flavor, um, so you can use them in a lot of other applications. And this is a, is it a root crop or are you eating the above ground portion? You're eating the petiole, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. So it's the above ground portion yeah, the above on that part, which is different than um, celery root, the vegetable. What is the easiest celery variety to grow in hot weather climates? The one that we carry, I think, is called Pascal, and that does really well. All right. Okay, let's, uh, for those of you getting geared up for warm season planting, appearing soon at a nursery near you may be some varieties that uh, you are not familiar with. Now, one that uh, you turned me on to several years ago, and it's not anywhere near being ready for uh, the marketplace yet, but it is so delicious, uh, if you like the flavor, it's an acquired taste. Malabar spinach. Yeah, the climbing Malabar spinach, was, which is actually native to India, and it's not a true spinach, but it's a good spinach substitute for hot weather because the spinach here will bolt once the weather gets too hot. Yeah, Malabar spinach doesn't take off till July or August. Yeah, and then it'll it'll produce all year long, and like you know, it'll grow up to like you know six to eight feet, really um, cover a really nice trellis. 
Yeah, exactly. I have a trellis for that. And there's another unusual plant. I believe it's from India, and it's called, I believe, Moringa. Yeah, Moringa's have been, become really popular the last couple of years. We'll have it soon in a couple of weeks. It doesn't like the cold weather, but it will overwinter here in Sacramento. But elsewhere, again, you'd plant it as an annual. You'll probably plant it as an annual like or a tender perennial and make sure you protect it depending on what zone you're in. Right. And in, 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 in tropical climates, it can be a tree. Around here, it's more of a ground cover. Yeah. But like you said, in, um, in, in parts of Fresno, the, it is grown in, um, in orchards. I think the older and bigger it gets, the more frost-hardy it is. But when it's small um, and has maybe a stem no thicker than a pencil, you really want to protect it because it'll turn to mush if we have a hard freeze. And if you uh, Google the word Moringa, you will find an amazing amount of literature about the uh, health benefits of it. Yeah, the, but pretty much everything, the leaves, the stems, um, the seeds, it's got multiple uses. And here we usually sell it starting as a one gallon, and then you'll, it'll get bigger um, the longer you have it. And what's the edible portion of it? Um, most people use the leaves. All right. And how do you spell it? M-O-R-I-N-G-A. All right. Moringa. So if you have a nursery in your area that specializes in interesting vegetable varieties, be on the lookout for Moringa. And of course, uh, you're starting to get in uh, some hot peppers. And what, what are some of your favorites to grow here? What are some of the ones that you have that uh, your customers really enjoy that maybe we haven't heard about? Well, the ones that we sell the most are usually the serranos and the jalapenos because those are most people want to use those for salsa. And if you want to grow like a little salsa garden, that's great. Then we start getting into the really hot peppers, which don't start showing up till later. And you probably won't be harvesting them until maybe September, October, November. And those are going to be like the habaneros, the ghost peppers, the um, Carolina reapers, scorpion peppers. So we'll carry all those. And um, they just have pretty much their own cult following. <laughs> yes, they do. And they take a while to mature. It may not be around here until October. And uh, more and more people are using their annual peppers and overwintering them for year number two. Yeah, you can um, basically treat it like a perennial. You just want to bring it in and protect it from the cold. And over time, it'll develop a really interesting woody stem. Yeah, so think about growing uh, hot peppers in uh, five or 15-gallon containers and then uh, overwintering them in a, in a warmer spot. And, and do they need that much sunlight when you're overwintering them? Uh, yeah, you want to still give them some really good bright light. All right. So there you go. You, and you get more production in year two than you would in year one. Uh, well, they'll still produce really well in year one. But as they get bigger, they'll turn into maybe a three by three sort of um, shrubby type bush. For those that like melons, the name bitter melon may seem like a contradiction in terms. Uh, well, we do. We um, will bring in bitter melon. Um, it, it, it's a, a acquired taste. So if you have never tried it, I'd try to have it prepared for you by somebody that knows what they're doing. But it's really popular with a lot of our um, uh, South Asian customers. Okay. And isn't there one called cucumelon or something like that? There's the cucumelon, um, or um, that one's uh, native to Mexico. It looks like basically a little small watermelon, and it's kind of a tart um, cucumber finish in your mouth, basically. It's become really popular in salads and for drinks and things. All right. So look for that cucumelon here. Well, we've learned a lot about unusual cool season and warm season edibles that you just might want to try this year in your garden. Master Gardener, Quentin Young, manager of Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery here in the Sacramento area. Thanks for uh, turning us on to something new. Thank you, Fred. 
We're glad to have SmartPots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. SmartPots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. SmartPots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And SmartPots clicks all those boxes. They're durable. They're reusable. SmartPots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit SmartPots.com Fred. It's SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to SmartPots.com Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next SmartPot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. No matter where you might live, you're going to be seeing blooms and blossoms, trees and bloom, flowers. And no matter where you're traveling, you're going to be seeing some interesting blooms this time of year. And it may be adjacent to farms. What's going on there? And can that work in your backyard? And the short answer is Yes, they can. We're talking with Rachel Long. She's a University of California farm advisor. And the blooms that we see beginning in March, Rachel, uh, farmers are taking advantage of that because, uh, heck, that's bringing on the beneficial insects and the pollinators. That's exactly right. So all these flowers that we're seeing out there now, the wildflowers that uh, that were that came up from the uh, from the winter rains are uh, are really important for uh, for bringing in uh, natural enemies like ladybugs and parasites or parasitoid uh, wasps to help out with pest control on farms. And what's what's interesting too is there are so many good native plants no matter what state you live in there are so many good native plants that you can put in that are going to attract these beneficial insects. Exactly that uh, that in every place in across the United States around the world you know just uh, that there's a lot of different flowering plants particularly in the uh, native ones that are adapted into your particular area that uh, that these are so critically important to provide that uh, that needed nectar and pollen for our beneficial insects and and not just our natural enemies but of course our bees as well and it's really important to uh, to pick the native plants and the native wildflower seed because they they actually are our best uh, for our natural enemies that if you try to say bring something in from south africa that nectar or that pollen might not be um best for the natural enemies maybe it, it contains some high alkaloids or it doesn't produce a lot of the nectar that our native beneficial insects really need so it's critically important to actually select uh, plants that are adapted for you know for your particular area that are native and uh, and and uh, the other issue with uh, with bringing in say you know uh, seeds that are uh, that you that are from different areas is is that uh, that they might be weedy i mean that uh, that they they could be adapted for the midwest but let's say if you bring them into california that that it could be a, a seed that's actually considered a weed in our area and an escape weed that uh, that could be a problem for our landscapes and, and our farming area. So it's really important to actually choose uh, plants that are native to that uh, particular area wherever you live. We will be providing in this episode's show notes a link to the Xerces Society. And from that list, you can uh, key into the state where you live and you can find the uh, native plant list that are best adapted mm -hmm. for this purpose. And so when you're talking about your, your backyard garden, 
any plants, the more plants, flowering plants that you have, the, the better. And uh, But again, these insects, they travel around a lot. You think that they're just staying in one place, but they actually move and uh, and they're constantly, they're predators, you know, so they, they have to move around a lot in search of prey, you know, like a lion, you know, it's always got to go out and hunt around for prey versus an aphid that just needs to sit there for its food. So so again, just having having flowering plants kind of all around your yard that uh, that provide this uh, nectar and pollen for beneficial insects is is really critically important and you know you don't have to like you know plant your whole garden that way it's just really important to intersperse the uh, your flowering plants around your garden and uh, these beneficial insects they rely on that nectar and pollen especially as adults uh, that the uh, the larvae tend to be predators but the adults are really relying on that nectar and pollen and so just having, you know, different flowering plants, I love the salvias in particular around gardens, and uh, they provide really good nectar and pollen for beneficial insects that then move into uh, into your uh, into your tomatoes or your zucchini and uh, really do help to control uh, different pests. So it's not necessary then to dedicate an entire raised bed of three by three or four by eight to these insectary plants. You could actually intersperse them among your crops? Absolutely. And actually, they're doing some of that uh, that down like in the Salinas Valley area in Monterey. And, uh, and, and what they do is they actually have been interplanting alyssum into the vegetable crops, particularly for organic production. So you'll see that like you'll see like a bunch of lettuce plants and then suddenly you'll see, you know, an alyssum that's a flowering plant that's blooming right there just sort of interspersed throughout the field. And uh, so you can either put them in, you know, mix them in around your vegetables, a few plants here and there, or, or put them on the edge. And, uh, and as I say, these beneficial insects, since they're predators, that they move, they, they have to move in, in order to find their prey. So, uh, yeah, so it's a, uh, you can just, you know, however, however you want to mix them around. And Alyssum actually is really a good plant. That's that white flowering plant that's low growing, and that does produce a lot of nectar and pollen. That uh, that really is attractive to a lot of beneficial insects. And and take a look, you know, when you go to a, a garden supply store, I always look and see if these plants are, you know, have any bees on them, or if I see any ladybugs on them. And often, oftentimes, when you wander around you know a a, like a a plant store to get some you know just to buy some different flowering plants and just look and see you know see what's there and uh, and oftentimes if i see a ton of bees on it i'll go okay that's for me i really want to have those in my garden to help pollinate my crops Um, so that's something to think about when you're shopping for plants and i would think then that the best time to shop would be midday because that's when most of the uh, insects are out flying around and yeah exactly pay attention Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. who's landing where Mm -hmm. and and consider those for your garden. Right. A while back, I posted at the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page an article called Plants That Attract Beneficial Insects. And it's a short, sweet list that uh, lists the plants and the beneficials that they attract. And there are some commonalities among many of them for like ladybugs, lace wings, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, parasitic wasp that you mentioned, which are great for controlling tomato hornworms, by the way. Right. But the, right. the plants that are on the list that I see commonalities, there's, there's yarrow, coriander, there's Queen Anne's lace, there's California buckwheat, there's penstemons, there's sunflowers. There's a lot out there that uh, are available widely that can work uh, in this regard. 
Exactly. And so you want to pick uh, both the perennials and annuals. And in particular, the reason why is because you really want to have uh, plants that are so that you can, if you can, you know, have them flower all year long or have a, have a range of flowering all year long so that there's always some uh, nectar and pollen for beneficial insects. So, of course, that depends on, uh, on where you're located. You can think about you know how to how to provide the, more of a uh, a year-round source of nectar and pollen. That that's really important because these beneficial insects are amazing, and we do rely on them for for con- naturally controlling our pests. Like some big ones are stink bugs. You know that's a huge pest of tomatoes, and and these natural enemies, if you have them out there in in your garden, I mean they will provide like ninety to a hundred percent control of your stink bug pests. And as well as uh, like armyworms and cutworms and and aphids that that are always a problem in spring and uh, and thrips and mites and uh, and then any of our plant bugs like leafhoppers that uh, that if you if you can provide uh, this uh, the food and also habitat for these uh, these natural enemies you know they do need places to live to bring on the bees to bring on the beneficials to bring on the birds. Put in some plants that's going to attract them and help you out. It will cut your pest control costs down to nothing. I mean, when we had our acreage uh, in southern Sacramento County uh, during the last few years there, I I was applying no chemicals whatsoever on my summer garden because uh, the, the good guys that were there were doing it all for me. Exactly. That they're there. We just have to create create habitat for them to bring them in to, uh, to to enable them to provide pest control for us in our backyard gardens and farms. It's a long term change. It's not a short term solution, but it is a long term change that will be to your benefit to bring on the garden good guys. Rachel Long, University of California Farm Advisor. We learned a lot today. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books or websites mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. Plus, you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. Maybe you could leave an audio question without making a phone call. You can do that at SpeakPipe. That's SpeakPipe.com. It's easy. Give it a try. And you just might hear your voice on the Garden Basics podcast. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and reviews section. You can always text us the question and pictures or use your voice to leave a question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. You can always use the good old email, fred at farmerfred.com. That's fred at farmerfred.com. And when you leave a question, be sure to tell us where you're from. That will help us greatly to accurately answer your garden questions, because as you know, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to our social media outlets as well, where you can leave questions or make comments. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And there's a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And thanks for listening. like to talk with Warren Roberts. He's the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. And we're looking at a plant a week, a plant that is 
fairly common throughout the United States and just might be ready to put on a show where you live. And there is one plant that really produces a beautiful fountain of yellow in late winter and early spring in many areas of the United States, Warren. And it's a deciduous shrub. It's known as forsythia. Forsythia is, um, uh, as you mentioned, a deciduous shrub with it blooms on its bare branches in spring. And it was named for somebody named Forsyth. And I think maybe in Britain they call it Forsythia, but in the U.S. we call it Forsythia at least. It is really on stage um, <laughs> doing its dancing and singing in spring. <laughs> it's one of the plants that really tells us, tells us that spring is here. The petals, the flowers have four petals, if I'm not mistaken, and they are abundant on the stems of the plants. And I've even seen it grown uh, as a hedge where it's pruned rectangularly. And that, of course, makes, makes quite a, quite a show in spring as this, this uh, hedge turns bright yellow. Uh, the, the genus is native to East Asia and also to North America. The, the most common one is a, of, of the forsythias is a hybrid called Forsythia intermedia, and most of the cultivars are in that particular uh, hybrid. Uh, but there are other species, and there are uh, hardier hybrids too that can, uh, how should I say, broaden the the range of, of growing this plant in gardens. It, it comes in a fairly uh, wide range of sizes as well, especially the intermedia. Uh, from what uh, th- there are varieties that are three feet tall, and there are some that are uh, up to ten feet tall. Yes, and the best thing for for society, unless you <laughs> unless you prune it as a hedge, which is an interesting is to let it show its natural shape, which is kind of like a big fountain of branches, some of them quite vertical and others arching with uh, a combination of it. And it brings sunshine into the winter garden, the bright, bright yellow flowers. Most of them are bright yellow and easy to grow. Uh, full sun is best, I think. But in, 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 it is a member of a family that has all kinds of interesting <laughs> members. It's related to lilacs, it's related to olives, related to ash trees, and it's related to, uh, to Chiononanthus. Um, Retusus, Chiamandus, Virginicus are in that family. But Forsythia itself is very much worthwhile growing. One fun thing you can do with a Forsythia, when you see the buds and they haven't quite bloomed yet, you can cut those branches off, bring them indoors, stick them in a vase of water, and they'll open up indoors. And they'll, yes, they'll open up indoors ahead of the uh, blooming outdoors. Another thing you can do, because these stems are very long, you could make a whimsical circle, actually, out of a very tall uh, growing stem. Uh, that's a bit bizarre, but it would be something you could do. So I think that it's uh, not used as much in the West as we might, but it's very popular in the Midwest and back East. Some people say, oh, it looks like scrambled eggs on a stick. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could say that. But, you know, when something is successful... People plant a lot of it, and then nothing succeeds like success. And then someone would also say, well, nothing succeeds like excess. I think that we should grow it a lot more. It certainly brings a smile to your face when you see it in the springtime. And uh, the forsythia can take some pretty darn cold temperatures. You have to get down to 15 or 20 below zero before the buds are damaged. Yes, it's great. It's a very tough plant regarding cold. 
It's a fountain of yellow in late winter and early spring. Check out the Forsythia. We'll have links for it in today's show notes. Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. Visit the UC Davis Arboretum online at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Warren, thank you for telling us about the Forsythia. Glad to have the opportunity, Fred. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's available on many podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, and many more. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a comment or a rating. That helps us decide which garden topics you'd like to see addressed. And again, thank you.